I invite you to take up your copy of the scriptures, whether you need to turn it on or turn to it, or follow along in the bulletin and what is produced behind me here as we turn our attention to the Word of God. It is Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. He who has ears to hear the word of God, let him hear it. Let us bow before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to do his work of illumination in our hearts. Father, we turn to this scripture as we do to any part of the Bible with a certain ability to read words and understand sentences. But if we're to have this burrow into our minds and affect our behavior, we need the spiritual work of the Holy Spirit to illumine this and enable us to understand the truth so that we can genuinely pray as we leave this place that we are changed, that you have done your work in us. And so we ask that you would be the teacher, that you would open your word that we would understand its truth and live according to it. We thank you and we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to give a somewhat broader context to why in the world we have looked into Revelation. Um, but I, in order to do that, I wanted to explain why. I, this text was the text which I was invited to preach last Sunday I was in Ukraine. And so there is a very definite sentimental connection that I have to our home country as a result of preaching this text and being with my Ukrainian brothers and our Ukrainian brothers and sisters on that day. The war had already started. The church was... Uh, mostly full, many of the people who were visiting were shattered, emotionally wrecked, traumatized people who could not believe that an invasion had happened. Not only had it happened, but people were already being killed and structures being destroyed and horror stories only four days in already percolating amongst we who were in that church. 
such that even the children of missionaries were beginning to be affected negatively by these reports and the sorrow and the sadness they saw. The Ukrainian people that morning, as well as Martha and I and our fellow missionaries, needed to hear that God was listening. If you investigate, it's been years since I actually read uh, um, the data involved that some people collect about Christianity and who believes what and what kind of practices are important. But if you were to talk to a number, any number of sincere believing Christians and ask them as they walk with the Lord, what is something that they would wish to improve in their life? There are probably four or five things that you might hear with regularity. They might wish that they could read the scriptures a little more often and understand better what the scriptures say. You would hear Christians who confess that they needed to speak the truth of the gospel to fellow men and women and children in order to spread the gospel, to evangelize. And they would wish that in some way they had more courage or they had more ability in order to speak to uh, fellow, uh, fellow human beings and give them the gospel. Evangelism is one place that many Christians will confess they would like to improve. You will also see in that top four or five a desire to have a more vibrant and fervent prayer life. If you walk with Christ long enough, you will find yourself wondering this very easy Sunday school question. Does God really hear my prayers? Now, we're sitting in a, in a, a warm building, a, a safe place amongst our friends, and we've all of us been in Sunday school, perhaps, I, I would hope, long enough, that if I were to say, does God hear our prayers, you would say, of course God hears our prayers. Let me read a couple of prayers from uh, the scriptures prophet Isaiah uh, said this and part of a conclusion of his prayer. He says in Isaiah 64, Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? The psalmist says it this way, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 13. Does God hear our prayers? Do our prayers really work? Every time a disaster or a a manifestation of evil happens in this country, I can be sure on Facebook I will hear two things. A number of people will say, Our prayers are with the victims, or our prayers are with the families. Our prayers, we're sending prayers and good thoughts. That's one thing we'll hear frequently. 
And we'll hear the opposition say something like this, stop doing prayers and start doing something. Let's say the implication is that prayer doesn't work. And if we walk with the Lord long enough, an occasion will come into our lives where even if we answer the Sunday school answer, yes, God hears my prayer, our inner voices will call that into question. And we will echo what Isaiah and the psalmist both have said. Will God remain aloof and far from us? And even if we're assured of God's answers, he is sovereign. It's his will that's being done. Does my prayer really even have an effect on the cosmic will of the creator of the universe after all? Why should I keep praying? Do they work? I want to answer both of those questions from this text, but in order to do that, let me first work a more narrow context for you. The book of Revelation, as we know, having read it, I'm sure many of us have read it, and all we can be is overwhelmed by the symbolism and the various uh, interpretations and the wondering of what might it be, Uh, What would this mean? What does that mean? And there'll be some people who speak very definitively that it must mean this and it can't mean that. And uh, it seems to be a book of confusion, but it was written to people who were suffering and struggling and wondering if God was really there and if God was really in control. And so John, who himself was suffering for the gospel on the island of Patmos, is visited by Jesus And Christ gives him this revelation, these 23 chapters that result in a letter of encouragement to the people of God. And so in chapter 1, we see Jesus speaking to John. He's dressed as a high priest, and the symbolism there shows him walking among the candlesticks, which he tells us are the churches. And we might want to pause for a minute for another Sunday school question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is here present with us right now? And again, we say, yes, of course. But our worship sometimes doesn't reflect that. Our attitudes frequently, uh, as we enter into worship, are distanced from all sorts of things. And we do wonder sometimes, is Jesus really here? But he is. And we see that illustrated for us in chapter 1. Chapter 2 and 3 are letters to the churches. And while there's some symbolism there, they're really pretty straightforward. There are two balanced kinds of messages. On the one hand, Jesus commends churches for good things that they're doing. Their, Their right behavior, their good doctrine, their ability to spread the gospel. And they suffer, and so they stand strong in their suffering. But on the other hand, Jesus always has something to say in in a critical way, that they're allowing for uh, heresy to proliferate in their churches. They're lackadaisical. They're not being uh, full of zeal for the Lord and things like that. And so the message of those two chapters is that you need to police yourself. You need to look at the things that the head of the church is saying about what needs to be improved. 
But to the one who overcomes is the promise over and over seven times, the promise that if you overcome, you will have a relationship with God that will never end, that Christ will eat with you and, and you will eat with him in fellowship and blessing and that you will have a new name in heaven and you will be given a crown and you will be allowed to sit on the throne and so on. All of this imagery to say the one who overcomes receives eternal life in Christ. And in chapter 4, the scene shifts, and it really does become very symbolic. And I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but I do want to make a point by emphasizing the, mute, the songs that are here. Now, my, my uh, text does not separate the, the, the idea of the song from the text itself. In, and um, so I had to mark down where these songs actually appear. But in chapter 4... I'll tell you two things. First of all, it, it, the song is actually found in verse 8 of chapter 4. And there are, there are four living creatures that defy description. John is struggling to give us any kind of analogy for these. They have wings. They have faces. They look in all directions at once. It's very mysterious. But they're clearly living creatures before the, play, uh, the, the throne of God, which is the, the placement of the scene. And so these four living creatures then say, and they don't stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And if you've sung certain elements of uh, the doxology, you may recognize that chant as they're saying it. But they're surrounded by 24 Presbyterians. (laughs) They're called elders. And these elders bow and worship God as these four living creatures pronounce this song. Then a scroll is introduced, and as that scroll is broken, the lamb that was slain, looking like a lion, again, it's very mysterious in a way, what are all those images? But we come to understand that Christ, the crucified one, is also the Lion of Judah, who has the right to open the scroll, which is the history of the, of the people of God as it's unrolled. And there, then, in chapter 5, we see a new song being sung in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. But now we don't just have uh, elders and the four living creatures. Now we also have angels, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them with myriads of myriads, just thousands of voices saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You catch the idea. We're starting with those four living creatures and their chant about God's holiness. But now it expands. The scene is growing as myriads of angels join in to sing this new song to celebrate the work of Christ for his people and to say how worthy he is for our worship. Chapter 6, there's a sad part of a lament when the people who are under the throne cry out, How long, O Lord, will you not avenge our blood? And they're told to rest a little while, that the 
history of the people of God has to come to full fruition. But then in chapter 7, again, a very mysterious kind of text that we read. All these people are being set apart. They're being sealed by God for salvation. But then in verse 9 of chapter 7, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and people's tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fall on their face, and they say, Amen, and the blessing and the glory and the wisdom of thanksgiving And the honor and the power and the strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You get it. It's getting loud in heaven. It's boisterous. It's praise. And then he opens the seventh seal and there's silence in heaven for a half an hour. What is possible to interrupt this celebration of worship that is so loud it's impossible to describe. What can render it silent in an instant? We come to our text. There's silence. Some commentators have suggested, as we see in here in the activity, the the seven angels are given trumpets, and one of the angels is about to blow his trumpet And we know that the trumpets represent the beginning of horrifying judgments upon the earth. And the suggestion by some commentators is that the silence is almost a horrifying silence because of what's about to come. It is going to be something the world has never seen. The judgment of God upon People of the earth. He's already set apart his own elect, as we see in chapter 7. But now the judgment is going to fall. And the silence in heaven represents this kind of anxious horror at what's about to happen. I struggle to agree with those commentaries. I I understand what they're saying and how it fits, especially in the Old Testament of uh, the Day of Atonement and how the people of Israel stood silently while the priests carried the sacrificial blood into the Holy of Holies. And they were waiting and waiting to see if he would emerge alive because then they would know that God's judgment had been passed over and that they were considered the people of God. But I would consider it more uh, in this vein. The silence in heaven represents, not to God, but to the readers of first century church as well as to us, an image of God listening to the prayers. Let me show you how that works When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, 
And verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. The scene where this is taking place is the center of the cosmos where God makes decisions about his created order, the things that he administrates, which is everything. I'd just be really clear about that. God's throne room transcends Moscow or Washington or any other capital that you'd want to pull in. Uh, Kiev, things happen in Kiev that seem to have quite an impact. Things happen in Moscow. Certainly things happen here in in the D.C. governmental apparatus that seem to have an impact. But God's throne is above everything. And he makes decisions that include sparrows falling and numbers of hair on your head, up to the cosmic way in which things are going to proceed. God rules, and this is the scene. This is in heaven at the throne room, and the party has suddenly stopped, and an angel appears with a censer. It's easier to, for a Ukrainian, perhaps, to imagine that because there are many steps in the Orthodox liturgy that involve a censer with incense. And the priest walks around and he shakes it. I know they do this also in Roman church and other places where they use incense, but they put all these poofs of, of incense smoke all around the room. And uh, if you have uh, asthma or, or some other respiratory uh, problem, it can be a problem to stay in the church with all of that smoke going up. But um, they have a censer with incense. And it, the fire for that incense comes from the altar that is just before the throne of God. And it mirrors the altar of incense that was in the tabernacle and later placed into the temple of Solomon. And in fact, there was that kind of incense as well in the temple where Jesus preached and taught and where the disciples understood very clearly the symbolism that had carried for over 2,000 years from Moses to the time of Christ. That table never goes out. And that incense is always available. The fire is there. And this is what the angel is given. He has a container with incense. And they pour the fire into that. They get it burning well. But don't overlook the inclusion of prayer to that fire. It says the smoke rises up before the throne of the Lord. How powerful is smoke? Can you knock a building down with smoke? Can you dig a ditch with smoke? There's not a lot of power there, is there? Uh, You can wave it and it'll swirl and move. Perhaps, as we've already mentioned, someone with a respiratory ailment would want to avoid smoke. And we don't like it when it gets in our eyes. Uh, We always used to tease people when we were having wiener roasts and marshmallows and all of that. The smoke would follow beauty. Or you can insult somebody and say it another way. But, you know, the smoke, you try to avoid it. You want to get away from it. But it doesn't have any power. 
doesn't do anything except rise. And here it is, verse 4, the smoke of the incense went up with the prayers of the saints out of the angel's hand before God. I would suggest to you that that silence is preparatory, of course, it is, and it's part of the moving on of the events of Revelation, but it's an illustration of God's attention that in spite of all of the joyous celebrating that's going on and the songs and the new music and, and the joining together and the amens and the voices that we can't count, God kind of, I want to really be reverent with this, but it's almost as if God says, shh, someone's praying. Not that God needs it, but we need to know that God is listening. He hears our prayers. But it's even better than that. It's one thing. I mean, we parents know what it's like to have a little child who just chatters and chatters and chatters and doesn't ever stop. And after a while, it kind of becomes background music, you know. And then suddenly you're listening because it seems to be saying something really important. It's not like that with God. He doesn't ever ignore us. But I think he's offering us a tremendous encouraging picture that in all of that celebration and praise, he hears our prayers. They're right there in front of him. But it does get better. Look at what happens after the prayers rise up. Then, in verse 5, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. That's a nice way of saying it. If you can imagine a baseball player catching a fly ball way out in right field and throwing that ball all the way to home plate to get the, get the base runner out. It's hurled. It is with strength behind, as much strength as an angel can muster. He hurls the fire to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. God hears our prayers, but are they effective? And we do enter into a little bit of mystery here. We do affirm that whatsoever comes to pass is according to the good pleasure of God's will. He is the one who controls the events of our life. His providential care of us is all on him. And yet, in some way that really does defy explanation, he uses our prayers as part of his will. Our prayers have an effect. Can you imagine praying an earthquake or a thunderstorm? They really do work with God's will. And again, hear me very carefully. God is the one who does it. Yet he has said, I want you to pray to me. I want you to commit to pray for and he'll put on your heart what he wants you to pray for. And when you do that, our obedient prayers are combined with God's will in some mysterious way to affect things on the earth. Isn't that great? Doesn't that encourage you to want to pray more? 
When Christians say, I wish my prayer life was more dynamic, I wish they would read these verses, your prayers are dynamic. They really do have an effect on our planet, on our systems. On, you know, we can say, well, I've been praying for the salvation of somebody for so many years, and it really doesn't look like it's ever going to happen. Don't stop. God didn't give you that burden so that you could finally give up and say, well, I guess it's useless. Pray. Keep praying for that. I shared some details of our story, Martha and I, and having to leave Ukraine uh, in March. Well, we left Ukraine on March 1st of 2022. And uh, several days working up to that, we kept trying different methods. We tried to hire a car. We bought airline tickets that were completely canceled. We bought train tickets twice. Uh, we were trying to find a way to leave Ukraine. And finally, we were able to get on uh, a place on a convoy of cars that were, were driving out of Ukraine and were able to, to leave that way. And some people have asked, well, what was going on in your mind? How is it like that to live every day? Uh, certainly, we had air raid sirens going off, and they, we were being challenged to get in, uh, into places that were safe and or theoretically safe from bombs and so on. We never, ever uh, experienced any life-threatening, there were no bullets, there were no bombs in our neighborhood where we were. And, um, and so it was a bit disconcerting, obviously. We were struggling, and we knew we couldn't return to our apartment in Kiev. So what to do? And we spent several days trying to leave. And when we get to the States, finally, we began to visit a few people in churches that had support and continued to support us. Over and over, we were told, oh, I'm so glad to see you. We've been praying for you. And I started trying to sort our feelings out and some of the, the things that we encountered in the, the days before we were able to leave. And I began to realize that even though every morning we would wake up and we would think, what can we try today? And every night we would lay back in the beds that we were renting in an in a Airbnb and we'd say, well, that didn't work, <laughs> you know. What will we try tomorrow and the next day? Well, that didn't work either. And all these different things were happening, but we were never discouraged. And honestly, Martha and I have agreed since then as we have shared our notes and talked with, with ourselves and with others we never felt alone. We never felt alone. And I am convinced it was because faithful servants of God in this country, as well as other supporters in other countries, were kneeling in prayer and praying such that there would be thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake on our behalf. God was paying attention. He heard and he answered those prayers. I want to say one final thing. Thankfully, we never felt abandoned. We always felt the presence of the Lord. But I began by talking about people who feel the absence of the Lord. And as wonderful and as blessed as it was for us to walk the streets of of Lviv, the city in western Ukraine, and we were trying to exit, God granted us that emotional security of knowing we were not alone. 
But the reality of his presence did not depend on how I felt. I'm glad he gave me that feeling. I can testify to the blessedness of the feeling. But the reality of his presence is based on this word that we're reading. The reality is he has spoken and he is doing it. And so if you are in that place, as we come to a close today, that you feel distance from God, it seems as though your prayers do not go past the ceiling. It feels as there a gap between you and God. This is not the time to say, well, what's the use? I guess God has other things to do. This is the time as you gather with God's people to hear God's word, to celebrate the the sacraments as, as the leadership here has determined them to be celebrated, to enjoy the fellowship that is here, to hear God's word as it is preached, and to allow that word to sustain you. And if God then grants you the blessing of a wonderful feeling, That's the cherry on top, and we thank him for that too. But it's his word, his promise, his illustration from this text. He hears our prayers, and our prayers are effective. I pray, no pun intended, I pray that you are encouraged in your walk to pray more, to draw near to God more, because of his promise to hear and that mysterious way in which our prayers work with him to accomplish his will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this illustration. We trust that your spirit will apply it as each of us needs it, but also as the church, as the group of your followers. Encourage our faith, strengthen our faith, help us to come to you quickly even when we feel there is a distance. And, oh, Lord, thank you that you have bridged that distance and you are never to, you've never left us or forsaken us. We pray that you would be glorified and apply your word in Jesus' name. Amen.